Crossway Church Sermon Audio. And a fine morning it is. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8 as we turn our attention to the Word of God. And for our guests, my name is Doug Plank, one of the pastors alongside Steve and Peter. Have the honor and privilege to bring God's Word to us this morning from the book of Romans as we come near to the end of eight on eight. Eight sermons coming from the book of Romans chapter eight, which in many people's estimation really is Mount Everest in the Bible, where you get such a clear and infinite sense, right? This sense of infinity of God's grace and power towards sinners. And all the benefits that come through the gospel outlined line after line as Paul reasons with us, seeks to encourage us, seeks to strengthen us in the gospel of his grace, the grace of Christ. And so here we are, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be focusing specifically on verses 31 through 37. But what do we really want? What do you really, I mean really, really want? What is humanity racing at day after day? What is it that we're all after? I think if we could boil down the purposes and the desires of every person, I think you would find it to be that we're not very inventive. We're not very creative when it comes to what we actually want. If you boil us all down, what would float to the top, you'll find it's very similar for all of us. So whether you are male or female, young or old, whether you're in Canada or Cambodia, I think what you're going to find is that we're all longing for good. We're longing for good. And more than that, we're longing to keep it, right? We're longing to have that good and to keep it secure. I think our nation's forefathers, they they captured this raw material of what we want quite well in the Declaration of Independence. You know these words quite well, I'm sure. That our Creator is, has endowed to us on the, certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. I sounded like a forefather right now. That they're just powers from the consent of the governed. So, there it is. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think Thomas Jefferson did well to capture what are we really after. And more than that, it's, again, it's that we keep these things because it's, it's not just that we get to have the, the freedom or the liberty to pursue what we want, our, our, the good, our happiness, and to have it for a moment like Cinderella until midnight strikes and everything turns to pumpkins. No, we want to keep it. We want to keep it good. We want to keep that good, and we want it to be well, all that would be well and all that it would stay well, right? That's what we want. These things look great on parchment, written in 1775, but in the real world, it's a different story. You know how it is. We live in a broken, fallen world as sinners. We wake up to see the breakdowns and the lack of security all around us every day. You wake to face it, right? You can't simultaneously retain your cake and devour it at the same time. Right? You can't have a good thing for that long. Every good, can, good thing comes to an end. These are the proverbial statements of our world. And it's our experience. It's your experience. It's mine. 
But a good thing we can't necessarily keep it. In the news cycle, in our personal experiences, we can illustrate this a million different ways. A million different ways. Whether it's from a trivial, trivial moment of loss to a terrible tragedy. And everything in between, it's an illustration time after time, day after day, of the lack of security that we live in today. And I don't say these things. I don't want to kick us off into some collective crisis. I'm not here to depress you into some sort of reality therapy. Rather, I bring these things up because I think we all know and feel deeply the need for abiding security. We feel it. We need it. Day by day. Not the kind that could be taken away by people or swept off by tragic turns or by disease or by personal failure or by unforeseen circumstance, but the kind of security that's deep and that's abiding, that remains, that keeps us secure. And we need the peace and the courage and the joy that comes from feeling secure, from having that security. And this is exactly the prescription. This is the pure tonic, the antibody to human doubt and insecurity. Paul the Apostle in these words, verses 31 to 37, is going to deliver this tonic to us. And my prayer and my challenge to you, would you open your heart this morning to receive it? Your doubts and your insecurities require what Paul is going to do for us. He is going to lead us into the the heart of the gospel, the very center, the nucleus of the gospel. And it's there in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're going to find our security. So let's read this text, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. Read with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the Word of God. And so we're going to look at this text. There's going to be a series of four, really four questions, or we're going to break it down into four sets of questions. That Paul's strategy here in his prescription, he's going to layer, it's a layered approach of one question after another laid upon the soul of the Christian to, to silence. The answers to those questions will resound to our assurance They will silence your fears, your inhibitions, your lack of courage in facing this life. And this is what we need, this pure tonic. So here is our theme. We are secure in Jesus beyond all doubt. Rejoice. We are secure in Jesus beyond all doubt. Rejoice. So let's turn now. Let's drive into this gospel of our Lord. 
by these questions. The first question can be summarized as who can be against us? Who can be against us? And this, this first question really is the opening shot of a relentless assault on our doubt. It's like the opening salvo of assurance, and it's the question of what then shall we say to these things? Paul asks, he says that in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? And there's an assumption that's baked into this question. And the assumption is this, that Paul has already unpacked for us through the previous chapter, starting in chapter 5 all the way through 8 here, He's he's unpacked for us some of the glorious realities and the benefits of the grace of Christ. The gospel has been shown to us from many different angles to this point. And so much so that our breath ought to be taken away with awe and wonder and security in the gospel of Jesus. I mean, in chapter 8 alone, we've been told this in verse 1, that all condemnation has been removed. We've been told in verses 14 through 15 that sonship has been received through Jesus Christ. We've been told in verse 17 that we are co-heirs of the inheritance of God in Jesus Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. And finally, in verse 26, we, we are told that we have the intercession of God the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way. The Spirit continually, in our weakness, He intercedes for us. Listen, this is, this is just a taste sampling of the last several chapters of the book of Romans. This is just a sampling, walk around Costco, get a little cup full of whatever. We could go on for hours to, to look again, the main four-course meal of chapters 5 through 8, and see the riches of the grace of Jesus and the gospel, and to know the security that comes through him. So, in concluding this glorious telling of the great benefits of the gospel, Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? Listen, what else can we say except, yes, preach it, Paul. Amen. Amen. And in order to provide us with every necessary assurance to be able to shout, yes, amen, Paul drives us further into another question. So Paul's going to answer his first question, what shall we then say to these things, with the next question, and then a whole series of questions to follow. And again, the effect will be to silence our fears. It's a layered approach. It's a a salvo of assurance being fired directly at our hearts. A salvo. So here's the second shot. Ready? Here's the second shot. If God is for us, who could be against us? That's, that's the second half of verse 31. Notice that no answer is given for this question. No answer. Just, just assumed. It's implicit. It's overwhelming. Absolutely. The, ab, the, the answer is simple and obvious. Who can be against us? No one. No one. If God is for us, no one can be against us. He's stating to state this positively. If the, if the living God our Father has determined that he is favorable towards us and loving us. And if God our Father is the master and king over all of space and time, over all things seen and unseen, then who could possibly amount to anything in opposition to God's people? Who? Who could possibly amount to anything? They're dust on the scales. They're less than dust. The opposition, if we have the favor of the Almighty. 
if we have the love and the support and the protection of God. Who can be against us? They're not even worth mentioning in this context. They're not worth mentioning. They're lighter than dust on the scales of no count. And that's certainly the case here in Paul's argument. He doesn't bother answering the question. It should be crystal clear to us that God's favor is everything. God's favor is everything. And everything else basically amounts to nothing. God's favor is everything. To know the grace and the favor, undeserved favor from God, to have that secure through the Lord Jesus Christ is everything to you. It's everything to me. Nothing else matters. The worst of this world, the devil himself can come to the door. They account as nothing to Paul if we have favor with God, if we have God's grace. The gospel has declared this. It has been so clear. And our confidence is not some stoic embracing of problems with the well-wishing that we'll become better people or that we'll see better days ahead. No, no. Our confidence is rooted in the person of God the Father, the very person of God who has chosen us and will never go back on his choice. He's chosen us to show us favor. Chosen, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have loved Christ and known his love, you are in his favor. You are in God's favor. And to have favor from God is eternal life, and it is God's solemn pledge to do us good all the days of our life until he returns or we go to be with him out of this fallen world. So, what should we say to that? What do we say to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? What else can we say but God be praised? God be praised. May the Lord be praised in your heart this morning that you have received favor from God. So let's move to our second salvo here. Or we will give, will God give us all we need? Will God give us all we need? And here's verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As if any further reasoning was necessary. I mean, Paul could have closed the, the book of Romans a while ago. Could have finished that parchment, put the pen down. Because he had already unpacked the glories and the grace of the gospel. But here he goes even further, deeper into the gospel to the question of God's benevolence and provision. Will God give us what we need? And that's quite the question, isn't it? And it presses us right where we're at. I think about our circumstance. Consider the pressure of making ends meet. This is a constant pressure. You feel, I feel, day after day, for every human. Will I have food, shelter, clothing, all my needs provided for now in the future? Will the cash flow I have today remain in place tomorrow, right? What about the money I owe people? What about the mistakes I've made that have put me in the hole? What about my older years when I won't be able to work or if I get sick or laid off from my job? What then? Now, what about this inflation around 8.5% highest since the early 80s and gas prices around $4.30 a gallon? What about that? Getting by is not as easy as it was. It's, not, it's becoming more and more than just problematic. 
for many people, for you and me, and to this and all these things, what shall we say? What do we say to that? What do we say to that? Well, let's see what Paul says. Because Paul takes us right to the heart of the gospel. This is the nuclear option, by the way. If you're going to deal with anxiety and fear, if you're going to deal with the lack of assurance and security, Paul is giving us a clear lesson of what to do about it. He goes back to the cross. He takes us right to the sacrifice of his own son. What does Paul say? He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Consider carefully what Paul just told you there. Listen, God the Father did not spare what was most precious to him. The Son, the glorious begotten of the Father, the Son who is at the very center of the Father's joy and delight, the one whom the Father loves more than anything else, anyone else. This very Son was sent into the world. He was given up. He was not spared. What was he given up to? What was he not spared from? Think with me. Consider what this means. He was given over to the devil's wiles, to sinful mankind. We plucked out his beard. We spat in his face. We fashioned a mockery crown of thorns for his brow. And then we crucified him between two criminals. He was numbered as a transgressor. This is what he was given over to. This is what he was not spared from. The Father gave him up for us all. The Father did not spare him. The Father is the one who planned for his own son's demise on the cross. It's the Father who is the one who chose to love us. To put us in the place of favor. And in order to do that, he had to put his only son in the worst possible place of disfavor. Under his wrath. And God the Son was crucified, dead, and buried, and it was finished. Praise his name. This is the gospel. And Paul explains, it's very simple, the logic of the cross. If God the Father is willing to do that for our good, out of His grace, will He not so very carefully, watchfully, wisely, and graciously deal with your little life with its little problems, with my little life with its little pressures? Do you think for a moment that the Father who would not spare His only Son would then abandon you to your troubles. May the Lord have mercy on us for our unbelief. May the Lord have mercy on us for the hard thoughts we have had of God that somehow He would withhold good from us, that somehow He has not given us what we need, or He has been not so gracious as the Bible would call Him to be. May God have mercy on us. Let us feel sorrow for the unbelief that we have had the Father's love. Let us feel shame for doubting that the Father might for a second forget to provide for our needs. Have you doubted? Are you doubting right now? Are you being tempted to take up sinful cheating? Are you being tempted to lie or steal or to fudge numbers out of 
making ends meet and feeling the pressures of that? Are you overworking? Are you married to your career and to the pressures to succeed and to see provisions made and then secured? Are you building silos out of fear of the future? May God have mercy on us all this morning to repent of our unbelief and to look to the cross and again be reminded of the absolute sheer mercy and goodness of the Father who didn't spare the Son so that He might with Christ graciously give us all we need. May our hearts throb with faith that we are secure in Jesus. And we turn now to the third set of questions. And this question is summarized as, who can accuse or condemn us? Who can accuse or condemn us? And in verses 33 and 34, we're going to encounter two questions to get, again, to the heart of our being redeemed and being kept by God. And the truth is, for, for all of us, there's, there should be many reasons for why God should abandon us right? Why we should have been accused and condemned by God. Even for some here this morning, you're condemned because you've looked at pornography this very week. You feel the filth, the scorn of sinning again and again in sexual impurity and lust. For others, you you, you feel the sting of accusation that you continue to become angry or easily irritated by your children or by people around you. You have encountered situations this week that you shamefully yelled at someone else. You have mistreated others. And for others here in this room, you replay in your mind the moments of shame. You've you've disengaged, you've given up, and you're now seeking escape through addictive habits, whether it's drugs or alcohol or entertainment binging. You're enslaved to self-pity, to depression and hopelessness. Brothers and sisters, we all very well know the sense that we should have been abandoned by God to our pursuits of self-interest and self-protection, and that we should have been left to receive the full brunt of guilt and condemnation. We know it, for we stand rightly accused of being sinful and wearisome in our weakness. We are rightly condemned. However, Paul drives us even deeper into the heart of the gospel. We're going further. This God the Father who did not spare His only Son, we are now going to see the mechanics of our salvation, the nucleus. So let's read the text, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The gospel logic is clear and it is overwhelming. If God, the righteous judge and the sole determiner of our guilt and innocence, if that God has declared his elect children to be justified and fully innocent in his sight, And further, if on the basis of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, and the resurrection, and the ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ the Son, if by that sacrifice we stand received and welcomed unceasingly before God, 
If those things are true, then what more needs to be said? What else, what more evidence could be rolled out to satisfy the guilty Christian of their forgiveness, of their acceptance before God? What more could be said to the despairing Christian who believes they're sub-Christian, that they're, dis- they're displeasing to God? What more could be added to the gospel that could possibly convince us, brothers and sisters, just how secure the blood and the sacrifice of our Savior has made us to be in His great love? What more could be said? What more could be rolled out? Our unbelief distorts the gospel and makes believe that more needs to be said. More needs to be done. And if more or more and more and more isn't said or done, we're lost and we're insecure. So goes the logic of unbelief. Always searching, always needing more. Faith, brothers and sisters, it latches on to one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, and His session before the Father where now because of the overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ, you and I are made permanently, perfectly, forever secure. That is what our faith latches upon. So, We are no longer condemned if it is God who justifies us. We are no longer accused. Christ Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended into heaven where He intercedes for us. You are no longer accused. Instead, you are commended. The voice of Jesus commends you before the Father rather than accusing. Your commendation is before the Father. You're no longer spoken of as a sinful wretch stuck in the futility the cycle of your sinfulness. No, you are spoken as a treasured daughter, as a precious son. And may you know and feel and sense the love of our God. We are secure in Jesus beyond all doubt. So rejoice. This moves us to our final point this morning. The final question in the salvo against our doubt, the salvo of assurance. Who can separate us from Christ's love? So we'll summarize this question. And it comes out of verse 35. It quite simply says that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Who could possibly separate us? Well, in this, this question, he's, Paul's going to take us to the brink of despair. He's going to take us to destruction. Paul has, he's going to have us consider some of the worst possible scenarios that you and I could possibly face. Now, I'm, I'm the kind of person who naturally goes there. If I'm on a plane, chances are I'm picturing that plane losing all of its engines and going into the ocean. <laughs> and I'm, in my mind, my fears, I'm like playing over what will happen in the next one minute as that happens. That's how morbid things get, right? In my mind, I'm in the ocean swimming, having a great time with my kids. What's the next thought? (laughs) There's a great white. And there are. They're along the Atlantic coast. They're there. They are lurking. Hollywood. It's not just Hollywood. It's the truth. Well, I'm here at church. You know, more 
mundane example, but it's still terrifying, right? When you're here at church, I'm here in church, I'm envisioning a, a difficult conversation I know I need to have with a, with a brother. In my heart, I'm, I'm envisioning it blowing up and going major sideways, right? And it makes life so difficult, the distress, the discouragement of, of a relationship going bad. I'm afraid of that. That's, that's a, that's a worst-case scenario in some ways, right? But mine pale in comparison to what Paul brings us through here in these last verses. Let's read his list. Look what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He goes, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And to top it all off, Paul goes to Psalm 44, to verse 22 of Psalm 44, and he says this, Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What is Paul trying to do here? What is he up to? Like, he's been laying out for us the glories and the comforts of the gospel, assuring us, assuring us, and then all of a sudden, is this a left turn? Is this the wrong turn? What's going on? Is he undoing us? To despair after giving us gospel comfort? No, no, no. He is not being morbid with us. He's not dealing morbidly with us. The Apostle Paul brings us to the brink, shows us the very worst, all to illustrate, very simply, that none of it, none of it can separate us from the love of God in Christ. None of it. The worst of this life in this fallen world, the worst that death or Satan or our enemies can throw at us, the worst, even that, no, nothing separates us. In fact, his resounding answer in verse 37 is no, no, these things will not, celebrate, will not separate. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So not only are we not being separated by these things, Paul goes even further, and he says, you are more than conquerors in them. Now, let's unpack this a bit, because if we're going to understand how, the world, how in the world it's possible that you, little old you, and little old me, with our big problems, can be more than conquerors through him who loved us, we have to address this. We require the gospel's power to cause those words to sink in deep, to be believed However, I think our unbelief could be like thick cotton balls pressed deep into the ear canal. You know, it muffles the voice. It, it causes what we're hearing to be distorted. And here's the dulling cotton effect of unbelief. We read of Paul's worst cases. We, we read and we're chilled. We're chilled to the bone by what he says from Psalm 44 verse 22. And when we stop to think about these realities, these worst case scenarios of life, we know, we can see this. That God doesn't spare all Christians from trials, from persecutions, from famines, from tribulations, from swords or great white sharks or Boeing 737 engine failures. God doesn't spare his people from those, all of them. More than that, Christians get cancer and they die regularly. Many Christians have difficult marriages. They're living within broken relationships. Many Christians today even, obviously, face very dire circumstances. So how in the world 
Can we say and believe in light of these ugly and painful realities that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? How might Paul's words bring actual comfort to us? Well, we have to start with the cotton balls. Please take a moment. Remove the cotton ball of your unbelief and the distorting effect it has on the voice of Paul. Because we cannot read verses 35 to 36 as evidence against the case of God's goodness and run for the hills to seek out our escape. You cannot read these verses as evidence that God will not be faithful or cannot be fully faithful or is not fully good. Therefore, he will not be trusted. This is not evidence against God. This is, we're, we're turning the Bible on itself. We're turning God's word against him. That's the effect of unbelief. No, brothers and sisters, our, our deepest security, our highest joy, our sweetest spot is to sit ourselves at the feet of Jesus wherever he is leading us. I don't know where he's leading you. You don't know where he's leading you. But I can tell you this, wherever he's leading you, your sweetest spot, the safest place, the most rich and rewarding and joy abiding place is to sit wherever he takes you at his feet. That's it. That's what Paul's saying. And our problem is that we have vastly overestimated the sufferings and tragedies that come in life. And we have terribly underestimated the grace and the glory of following Jesus wherever he leads us. And further, we terribly underestimate the power of God in enabling believers to faithfully sit and stay seated wherever the Lord puts them, that they will be given the grace to endure whatever hardship or trial that the Lord might send their way. And further, finally, we terribly underestimate the glory that is coming and the rich rewards that are promised to those who endure for the sake of Christ all things. Our accounting is off. Brothers and sisters, we, we need a better accounting of this life and its troubles and tragedies in the light of the inseparable love of Christ. Is your accounting off? Are your scales up to snuff? Are your, is, are your spreadsheets accurate? Let's do some accounting. Have you placed correct value and weight upon the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord? Right? True faith glows. It glows with God's grace as a person is convinced, I count everything as loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's where faith glows. The grace. For any who shrink back in cowardice at the thought of worst-case scenarios or losing their lives, Jesus, our Lord, splashes us with cold water to wake us up. Wake up. Wake up out of your unbelief and out of our fear. And it's all attempting to save our lives. That's worldliness. Those fears are trying to cause us to save our Lies, And that's not what disciples do, right? Mark 8, 35. Jesus says it so plainly. This should be so obvious to us. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Stop saving your life. That's what Jesus just said. Stop saving your life. 
Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but be afraid, rather, of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell, Jesus would tell us. Let our fears be of the right order to fear God, to look to Christ. And the promise of being more than conquerors, it's, it's not idealistic. It's not theoretical. It's, it's the power of God in the soul of His people that enables them to sit wherever the Lord tells them to go. That they sit, they obey, they endure because they love Christ and they've counted all things as rubbish that they might gain Christ. That is discipleship today and that's been discipleship for 2,000 years. And it's going to be discipleship for whatever comes next. No matter what, your pay, what happens to your paychecks or no matter what happens, danger, persecution, or, or sword, it, discipleship will remain the same, yes, even through those, that our Lord will give us the power to endure, to sit where He leads us. To be more than conquering is the power of God at work in daily situations where sacrifice is called for, where loss must be endured, where whatever sorrows or burdens must be, must be carried. More than conquering is going on. More than conquering is going on in the… It's, it's, it's at work in the man who denies his flesh, who, who says no to his sin out of the fear of the Lord and the pursuit of Christ. This man shows the evidence of supernatural power as he confesses his sin to other people. And he seeks out help through fellowship to, and the encouragement to deny himself. That is the power of Christ. To confess your sin… To get help, glory to God. May there be much confession and grace through fellowship. Being more than conquerors is the power of God at work in an older single woman who endures the hardship of constant desire to be married with no prospects in sight. And yet, and yet, she trusts God. And yet, she resists the temptation to compromise or to seek out sinful or worldly solutions. Sisters in the Lord, the Lord is so pleased by your fear, by your love of Him, and by not giving in to the worldly temptation. To be more than conquerors means that we have all the resources of Jesus Christ and of heaven. God has promised to provide us with every ounce of grace that we will need to stand firm in our place. So, in conclusion, and ushers, you can begin to make your way forward to begin to pass out the elements. We'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper this morning. What a precious thing. So we do not shrink back in fear looking at the worst case scenarios with the, the terror of a, a single soldier facing a terrible army. Of course, that would be mind-numbingly terrifying to be the, a sole soldier in the battlefield and this great and terrible army marching its way towards you with all their weapons aimed at you. That's a terrifying picture, but that's not the picture we live in. Wake up. Wake up. That's not the picture you live in. And so let us not be afraid. Let us not be cowards in the life of discipleship. Let us rather understand what Paul is seeking and is, is bringing to us the heart of the gospel. That we have all of heaven's resources in Jesus Christ given to us. Our battle is the Lord's. The battle you wage, it is the Lord's battle. 
and he supplies everything. So even if we fall in the battle, it will have been so that his greater and good purposes might be accomplished. The matter is settled. And you can begin to distribute the elements, brothers. The matter is settled. We do not and will not escape death in this fallen world, and we will need to suffer many things. Therefore, we need all of Christ and all of the resources that God has promised. And that's precisely what Paul is telling us. He tells us very clearly, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God has not been spared, but was delivered up for your many sins. Christian, you are secure in Jesus beyond all doubt. And it's in this supernatural blood-bought and sovereignly enforced security that we rejoice. And so we will, through the taking of the bread and the wine together. And this is such a good moment to turn to the Lord's Supper that we might partake and rejoice in these very things that make us more than conquerors in the world. The kindness and the love of our Savior who patiently speaks to us through His Word, who reasons with us in holy reminders of His grace all of God's faithful provisions. He has provided all that we need. His own body and His own blood has been supplied that we might be more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And aren't you grateful that the Lord has condescended in His reasoning with us? He knows you're, we're dust. He knows you're made of dust. You're frail. He knows like children we can lose our way. Our eyes look to the wrong things. We become afraid of the wrong things. And we can go astray. He knows. So God has tenderly arranged for us to share in a meal together. To remember and to be fed. And God the Son has commanded that the church receive the bread and the wine together with his presence among us through the Holy Spirit. So this meal has been arranged for all who trust in Christ for salvation. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you not partake this morning. You withhold. Rather that you would understand that you need Jesus Christ and that you should call on his name. This would be a good day, wouldn't it? To know eternal life, the love of God through Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper is given to us as a means of feeding our faith, of reminding us of the Lord's gracious and overwhelming provisions in the gospel through his son. And it's more than just remembering or memorializing, right? It's not just that we're going like on some old photographs and looking back and remembering the good times, remembering the cross. No, it's, it's more than that. Certainly it is remembering, it is memorializing what Christ has done, but it's also a physical demonstration of what God has done to make a solemn promise with sinners who gather in his name that he has loved us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Right here, evidence provided for us, physical evidence. And as we do, as we take up the bread and the wine in our hands, we must recognize that Jesus has commanded us to do this. And that these physical objects, the food, the bread, and the wine, the drink, are the Lord's testimony here and now. This, hear the Lord speaking through this. Listen to your Savior. 
He did not spare his own blood, his own body, but delivered them up for us all, just as the Father did not spare his own Son, but delivered them up for us all. So we come this morning to the Lord's table. So I call you from God's word as we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper. Now that you have the elements in your hands, would you stand together with me? And I welcome you to the table, the table that has richly supplied this food and a drink in our hands. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make for you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. same way Jesus also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and let us partake of the wine now look to the Lord in praise the security that Christ has brought for more information head to our website at crosswaypa.org